The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Muhammad Ali. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Fry. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Connery. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Michael Caine. Oh, the familiar voice of one of Britain's most loved broadcasters, Sir Michael Parkinson. Now, over the years, people will say, what do you do? I mean... Your father was down the mines. Here are you asking a few old questions. Yes, you know, it's know. easy peasy. It's, well, it's, it's, it's not as difficult a job as my father had, that's for sure. I've been, been getting coal out for all his life, that is for sure. I've always been very aware of the fact that I've been lucky. Given that perspective of my childhood and seeing my father go down the pit and seeing, seeing the business kill him, basically, because he died of pneumoconiosis when he was yeah. only 72 and he's a very fit man. Now, he brought you down as a young fellow to see how the mines he work. He did. He took but, me down. But you've said it wasn't the tourist version no, that you got. No, it was not. First of all, I was dropped like a stone and down the lift, lift shaft because, you know, my father gave the wink to the guy operating the winch and he just went like that, took the brake off and went down like that. I felt grim. But then he took me uh, to see where miners were working on their bellies in a three-foot seam and it was so hot down there too and they were working just about naked. And, and it wasn't what I expected. Uh, it really wasn't. I mean, I knew it wasn't a de- uh, an office job. but I didn't realise the, the physical problems that people had and the dust was awful in those days you know people didn't wear masks or anything like that they couldn't work in a mask to start with because it was too hot and anyway coming home he said to me he said listen he said what do you think and i said not for a thousand pounds a shift would you get me down that pit and he said that's exactly what i wanted to hear you say he said but if ever i see you at the pit gates i'll kick your ass all the way home did <laughs> did it affect your own admiration of your father? Oh, you know, when you saw him coming home in the evening, now knowing what he had been through every day. Inordinately, I, I'm glad he did that because I had a vague notion about what going down a pit meant. I, I knew it wasn't pleasant. I could smell it, you know. I could smell the pit, and I could taste it because I looked across in my bedroom, and there was Grimethorpe Colliery there, writ large. And it was a sulfuric kind of smell and taste in your mouth, and I thought, that ain't going to do any good. And the other thing that used to bother me was that every year they would bring up the pit ponies from the pit bottom. And these creatures who worked all their, their lives in, in dark were blind, blinded by the sunlight. So you used to have to wrap uh, scarves around their, their eyes and they put them in a field next to where, where we lived, nearby where we lived, uh, to have their holiday. They'd have sort of three or four days. And they'd just run around the field, run riot. And of course they couldn't see each other, so they were bumping into each other like dodgem cars. And I used to sit and watch this, and I think, if the dad did that to an animal, what's my father going to be like? You know, yeah. I just had that strange sort of feeling about what kind of place it was he worked in. Now you became a journalist and went on to become a broadcaster, mm. but it wasn't all easy peasy, as I mentioned, because you were at one point a war correspondent. I was. I was young. I was in. I was. Uh, I first of all the first war. I was in was Suez when I was a national serviceman, so I'd seen a bit of bit of action there, I suppose. 
but then when I first came out on about 22, 23, I went to what used to be Fleet Street and I joined the Daily Express and they had the notion that because I came out of national service as a captain that I was fit to be a war correspondent. Well, no, war correspondents are very different people to me, let me tell you. They're brave for one thing. <laughs> uh, and I didn't enjoy that very much. Indeed. I went to two or three wars. Uh, hated it, hated the business. You, you were in the Belgian Congo because we I had was. Irish troops serving with you the United did, Nations and in Cruz the Congo. was out there yeah. too when I was out there, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it, that was a mess, the Congo, total, utter mess, full of brutal people on both sides. I used to sleep in the Leo Durr Hotel, it was called, in what was called Elizabethville in those days. And every night, the mercenaries, of which there were many, some good soldiers gone wrong, others just fools and oafs, and miscreants would come in the bar beneath my bedroom and, and a bit of a joke, they'd start firing shots to the floor. So I used to sleep, <laughs> I used to sleep in a cast iron bath. <laughs> I was going to be shot at the backside by those madmen downstairs. Um, and I wasn't really suited for it at all. I mean, uh, I, I, I just didn't like it. And I, I'd longed to do something different. I didn't really know what it was. I mean, I'd always loved sport and that sort of thing. But I went back to being a, a general reporter, a feature writer, basically, for the Daily Express. And then in 1961, I just got this call out of the blue from a friend of mine in Manchester saying, look, we just started Granada Television and would you like to come as a producer? And I said, I don't, I can't produce programs. He said, well, neither can we. We don't know what we're doing either. <laughs> he said, we have a big pot of money, he said, and Bernstein's a very good man to work for. And Granada, that was the beginning of it. I mean, at one point, Granada was more popular than the BBC, and it created this thing called Granada Land, where you had to have, and this is important, you had to have an accent like mine to get a job there. I couldn't have got a job at the BBC as a doorman with my accent yeah. in those days. And, and, of course, Gay Byrne, having an and Irish Gabriel, accent. Gabriel he, was there. Gabriel Mary Byrne. Died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. We, we had some good times together. He never bought me a drink at all. <laughs> Five years I knew not to drink. Uh, well, still, I've known him for 60 years, just about, I suppose, never to drink. Anyway, that's another story. But, um, but yeah, we became firm friends. He was a wonderful performer, Telly. He really yeah. was. And of but course, you guys were making it up, really. We were. Well, that's the point, you see. We were all making it up. Nobody knew what to do, how to do it. So we, there was a common sort of thread of journalism through it all, producers and performers and that sort of thing. Uh, and a broadcaster like, like Gay, who also was a natural, he just had a natural thing with cameras or microphones, whatever. And, uh, and we just actually stormed it. It was wonderful. And, and we, we transformed, you know, a uh, little-known craft into what, what it's become now. And we were part of it. We were the kind of pioneers. And when you think back on it, we, we didn't realise what we were doing until you look back and think, well, that was significant. It really was, you know. Now, you talk about the BBC and the, the notion that even the radio newsreaders read the news in dinner jackets. Yes. Now, I'm not sure whether that was ever true. It was true. <laughs> really? It was oh, absolutely. Paul Dickey bowled a lot. <laughs> Good evening. This but, is the BBC News. But when when you actually went to the BBC, was that on the basis that you they knew you were an audience winner at that point, or no, were no. there people like you now in the BBC? Well, no, there weren't. I mean, we we were sort of vanguard. Uh, well, what happened was that you know, having said that, I couldn't get a job as a doorman at the BBC when the Cultural Revolution arrived in the early sixties. I mean, we had the Beatles were us were our our show band. I mean, uh, all the actors, all the writers, Coronation Street happening, all that that huge meltdown of society, which we didn't realise how important it was until later on. But we were at the epicenter of all that. So the fact became that you had to have an accent like mine to get a job. <laughs> BBC. <laughs> so we overwhelmed them from outside, basically. 
and uh, and again it was it was great fun i mean and and, and uh, i got the talk show quite by chance it was a eight week summer break show and no guarantees from that point on and i left 11 years later mm. initially they wanted to do the johnny carson type thing where you yeah. do stand up for about five or six minutes <laughs> before you that did not suit you. Well, I, I tried it. I got a writer and I went out and did a few jokes. I suddenly realised I was a terrible comedian. I really was. That wasn't <laughs> my gift at all. And also, we, we, we decided from the very beginning that, that this kind of show we wanted to do would mix showbiz with, with ordinary people, if you like, yeah. interesting people, the people that I wanted to talk to. And we got that idea of having this mix and match thing, and, and that really worked. Uh, I think maybe we were one of the first shows to do it. Uh, and so that really worked very well indeed. And at the end of, of the ten-week period, then you know I was off there, and off and running, and and I only left them eleven years later because I, I stupidly went to form breakfast television in Britain. TVAM. Yeah, TVAM. Yeah, that was my yeah, life. There's a famous five, wasn't it? Well, they had the infamous five <laughs> now, the, the poultry five. But, but looking back on that, that was a catastrophic mistake on one level. Yeah. But are you glad you did it? I'm that glad you had I, a go. Well, I'm glad I saw the corporate mind at work. I'm glad I saw because I became a director the company it was a bribe to keep me there and i saw how awful and appalling people can be in running other people's lives and i didn't like what i saw i didn't like the corporate body i didn't like the money men and all that sort of nonsense and sadly i it, it folded and and david frost who was my dear friend a lifetime friend uh, lost more than most people i mean he'd invested an awful lot of money to himself i hadn't done that i was a hired hand and I, but out of that came the fact that I, I went to Australia and I, I, I discovered Australia. My shows had been shown there, the BBC shows. So when I arrived in, in Sydney Airport, the first man I saw said, Good day, Paco, how are you going? <laughs> and I thought, This is very odd. I've come 12,000 miles. This guy knows me. <laughs> and, and I had a wonderful time then, gradually sort of rebuilt the, the career from there. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I came back to the BBC. And um, the people that you've met over the years, and there's no point in counting because you'll get the, the, the answer wrong at the end of the yeah, count. You exactly. know, a couple of thousand people Hi. over the years. And you will always be remembered for Rod Hull and Emu. <laughs> but it brings oh, me to... You know, Pat, I thought you were a friend of mine. I'm leaving now, ladies and gentlemen. You I'm, expected I'm me to no, say no, Muhammad no, Ali. Yeah, did, yeah, I did, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, sorry, you were saying. Yeah. But uh, the, the reason I was going to bring that up is because the role of the host is often to be the foil, is to be the butt of the joke. Absolutely. Because yeah, you're the foil guy. You know, yeah. w- when you're in two minds, it's happened to me a few times with Brigitte Nielsen t- trying to get me to try on her boots and, oh, you know, Freddie Starr doing Im- impossible things to me. <laughs> but you're thinking there's two minds. One is, this is deeply embarrassing. Yeah. And this, the other half of your brain is saying, they're not going to switch off. No, they're absolutely not. <laughs> and what you're doing over a certain fact, when you get attacked by the email, I knew immediately, was that will be the only thing that would define me at the end of my career. <laughs> he was the man who was attacked by an email. No, the rest, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Nelson Mandela, no, forget it, Margaret. Oh, forget that. But the email, yeah. there you go. And that and Meg Ryan. Oh, and Meg Ryan. Meg, let us not forget the dear Meg. Meg has utterly changed facially. I don't know whether you've seen the pictures uh, recently. Yes, For the better? No, no comment. This <laughs> <laughs> is getting very sexist. <laughs> no, she had listen. She was in a bad mood, and I was in a bad mood. So we, you know, we, we collided, and that that happens on a talk show. You know, when you get rid of all that stuff, and it happens, as you know, you know when you're broadcasting, after a while, you you actually forget the media you're working in. You're just you're yeah. talking. You know, man, like we're talking now. Uh, and so you you actually lose all the pretense, all the shield, and all that sort of thing. And that's when you actually it it comes over best of all. It come becomes more natural and and, and sincere in a sense, and and prone to 
or yeah. accident. Most of the time it becomes intense in a nice way. And yes. You, uh, revelatory of the guest. Absolutely. But in this case, it was very revealing of the guest, <laughs> but not the kind of side of her that she would have not wanted. Not precisely what she wanted. <laughs> no, nor myself either. I mean, I did lose my temper with her and I was, I was quite rude with her, which I kind of regretted afterwards. But I did, watching it back, I thought she didn't leave me much option. She yeah. didn't want to be there. What did you say to her at the end? I didn't. I, I, her agent was nasty. No, I mean, before the end of the interview, you said to her something like, what oh, would you I, do? I said, if you, I said, you said you're a journalist. She claimed to be a journalist. She wasn't. And I said, but if you claim to be a journalist, I said, you must know what I'm feeling. I said, but I said, tell me, if you were in my shoes now, what would you do? And she said, wrap it up. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. And sadly, I didn't at that point. It was a perfect exit, but I thought, no, no, I'm going to go a bit. I'm going to get a bit more out of this bird, whatever <laughs> happens. And uh, it was a forlorn hope. Mm. She wasn't playing. She was in a bad mood. She had actually, uh, Russell Crowe had just split from her. Um, so she wasn't pleased about that. The film was a turkey. So she wasn't really pleased about that. And yet she'd contracted to do all the interviews. Of course, precisely. So she was at the end of it, a long, tiring tour. And she didn't want to be there. So yeah. there you are. But you never spoke to her again, I presume. No, well, never well we, we trade insults in the trade press now. Um, <laughs> she goes on whenever she's interviewed about the awful man whose name she forgets uh, in England, and I do the same with her. <laughs> um, you, you, Very childish. The, the other memorable encounters of so many, uh, your, uh, a number of meetings with Muhammad Ali, Aye. a man who in his later years behaved with such dignity in spite of being surrounded by avarice people, mm avaricious people rather, mm. who wanted to suck him dry, basically. It's very interesting, Pat. You know, I interviewed him four times, and that 10-year spell that I interviewed him over was, was significant in the fact that he, he came from being contender to world champion to a man affected by a terrible and awful illness which boxing had brought about. So well, I saw his life story encompassed in a sense in, in that 10 years I interviewed him. And I, I grew to like him Im immensely. And the saddest interview I ever did was the last one in 1981 where he came on the show and he still had one more fight after this. God knows how he did it. but uh, And he shuffled on and his eyes were dead and his neck had thickened and the voices were slurring a bit like that, you know, man, and all that sort of thing. And, and I, I, I sat and looked at him and I thought, I don't want to see you like this. I, I, I admire you too much. I, I think you're wonderful, you know, as a human being as well as being a great fighter. And I, I can't, can't bear the thought that one day you'll be that shambling wreck that you see at boxing matches. And that's mm. what happened to him. And it was caused by boxing and the fact that people who had a duty of care to him ignored that duty of care. And, and they deserved to be, well, there's nothing too bad can happen to them. But... The point was that when he died, that uh, and I didn't see him again ever. And I was asked to do in 2000 when he became the athlete of the millennium. <clears throat> I was asked to do the interview with him by the BBC, and I turned it down for all the reasons I've just given you. I couldn't bear to sit opposite him. I didn't want to see him like that at all. This glorious man I'd seen, his prime, beautiful, beautiful man, gliding away. And I turned it down, and, and then I had this terrible conscience about, oh, don't be so silly, don't be so stupid. I mean, you, do you have a duty to go and do it? But I didn't, anyway. And my friend David Frost did it, and I saw David, and I said, what happened? He said, we had to show it with subtitles. <sighs> that was, uh, I don't, didn't want to be part of that. So in a sense, my, my, my feelings of 
I don't know what they were, shame in a sense of not doing something to a man I, I admired so much, was sort of uh, balanced out by the fact that really it, yeah. they wouldn't have worked. And, and that contrast between you aging gracefully, sound in wind and limb, and this wonderful athlete. It was appalling. I mean, he was the most glorious, beautiful man I ever saw. He was magical. And he, he kind of glided onto the show like Fred Astaire, you know. And he was provocative and he was argumentative and he was all those things. But when you looked into the background of where he came from, you began to understand more. I don't believe that any white person, man or woman, can actually understand fully the black experience. Certainly not the one he went through. Yeah. You know, the segregation, all that stuff that he went through. You know, we don't serve Negroes here. Man, I don't eat them and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he did, you know. But I mean, imagine that on a daily basis. Imagine what you'd be like or what I'd be like. When you interviewed him in the, in the what was it, the Mayfair Theatre? Yes. And he became angry with school. you. You became, in effect, the white man. Oh, yeah, exactly. Although I never believed that anger, you see. I mean, he was, a, he was an extraordinary actor. He really was. I mean, I think that I, I actually pushed him. And I think he, being a boxer, he retaliated. But he was never a hate white man at all. Of course he didn't. He was too friendly with everybody. And see, with kids, black, white, pink, purple. He was wonderful, doing all the card tricks and the anchor tricks with him and all that. He was a very, very nice man at, at heart. He was a political animal because the black Muslims saw in him a breadwinner, basically, and that's where he became for them. He was sincere. I doubt they were as sincere as he was. Now, you must have felt... Um bruised somewhat by that encounter and your dad comes to you after the show in the dressing room and you're kind of probably angry with yourself I was angry and, and I sat there I was, I was, I was really weepy I was thinking oh, that was bloody stupid I mean you, you goaded him into that and all that stuff going on <clears throat> and I knock on the door and I open the door it's my father and he said uh, he didn't say much for him but he said can I ask you a question R. Michael when he said R. Michael it always meant there was a serious point coming I said yes sir, what is it he said uh, out there, he said, uh, what do you think? I said, not much. What do you think? He said, but the awful. He said, why you hit, hit him? <laughs> I said, oh, it, the world heavyweight champion. I oh, said, I'd have done that. They would have done, I think. <laughs> they would have been a, a spectacular. And you end. might not be talking to me today. Well, I might not be. But, um, but when he died, I got these phone calls from all over the world. And, uh, and I did from, I don't know, six in the morning to eight at night. I, I was doing interviews, radio, television, a lot. And at the end of it, I was, and I was telling them what they wanted to hear, in a sense, which is what you do. I mean, you say, you know, the things that you, you know, yeah, so you think about the guy, but you're not thinking too deeply. And at the end of it, I thought, what do I really think about this man? What do I really know about him? And I thought, that's a book. And so Michael and I, my son, we, we set about researching him and, and looking at what he said, what he did, the influences around him, how he was treated, why he became the forlorn creature he became and uh, it's coming out in in the autumn and I look forward to and it's a memoir it's not a, a big thick book it's a memoir of four interviews the most remarkable man I ever met but going beyond what I found out about him to, to try to understand him better we're here with uh, Sir Michael Parkinson and uh, we are talking about his life and times. Michael, um, the, the talk show mm. and your success, do mm. you think uh, you could do it again today or have things changed, changed utterly? I think we could do it again today, uh, like yourself and Gay and myself and you know one or two other people, David Frost. I think we could. Um, the audience has not gone away, that's for sure. It's been starved a bit of what we did. Um, 
I think that the, what's happened is that uh, that the the what's proliferated now the comedy talk shows basically all being done by comedians. Some very good. I mean Graham Norton in, in I think is brilliant. I think it's very well produced show. It's funny and and all that sort of stuff. But the rest are kind of forlorn and tired, I think, both in America and, and, and here. And I don't see the reason why uh, it shouldn't happen that you bring back at prime time uh, the old-fashioned interview show. I mean, I think here here in, in Ireland, you've actually got a better record on that than anybody else. I mean, in England, we don't have a single one. I mean, it's, it's, it's disappeared. It's, it's dead. It's gone forever, it would seem. But here, at least, you kept that tradition going with the Late Late Show and that yeah. sort of Maybe the Brexit debate would have turned out differently had well, there been <laughs> a talk show that I, dealt with I, issues. I, I, well, maybe so. I, I don't know. But they were, that, that is what's missing. And I think that there's, in the, within the audience, particularly the mature audience, there is a great feeling that they need that sort of thing. They want that sort of thing. I'm not knocking the, the comedy show. I mean, I watch some of watch Graham's shows and I laugh at it. I enjoy it. But I do miss that other bit where, you know, you get an unexpected balance of people and you get the, the, the genuine conversation taking part. It doesn't all have to be laughs. Um, the, the medium has changed as well because so many people, they just record and in commercial television terms, they flash through the ads yes. or they uh, defer their viewing until it suits them. I mean, the only things that people watch might be live political debates, unfolding news and, of course, sport. Oh, yes. There's no point in watching the match <laughs> two hours later. You know, it's almost impossible not to know the result. That's right, yes. So, so, so what is the future, do you think, of broadcast television? I, I think that it's, it's, it's shifting its base. I mean, it's no longer people sitting down around the fireside and watching telly in the corner. Well, I mean, my grandchildren don't do that at all, let me tell you. Yeah. They don't do what I am. Unless you go on, on, on the internet, but, oh, look at that type of a granddad. Oh, look at him. Oh, look at him there, and all that sort of stuff goes on. So, I mean, you forget all that. They forget the, the where we came from. But we have the satisfaction of knowing that we actually were part of this in, industry before it was as diffused as it is now, and we're part of it when it was a significant. They played a significant. Uh, a part in, in people's lives where, you know, it was the family gathering around the set and watching all of us make fools for ourselves. Mm. And from that point of view, we should all be very proud of that, of what we achieved. I think so. I think, you know, the, the pioneer people, you know, were the ones who set the standard and, and, and people still talk about it and talk about the shows. I mean, in 1970, I did my first show, I was still talking about some of the shows I did then. Uh, will the same happen to somebody doing an interview show now? I don't know. Do you think mm. so? I don't know. No, There's I mean, a, I mean, when you think of the audiences, Pat, I mean, I used to get on the BBC, I get 15 million people watching the damn thing, you know? Mm. You know, when I did cinema for Granada before I joined the BBC, uh, because it was hammocked between uh, two episodes of Coronation Street, I got 22 million people wow. watching cinema. I mean, you know, you became very famous very quickly. I got locked in a chip shop once with, uh, with the one, uh, Doris Speed from Coronation Street, right? Annie Walker. I mean, I, I mean, we had to send for the fire brigade to get us out, for God's sake. I mean, there were 2,000 people outside. We couldn't get out. I mean, those days are gone now. You know, you don't get that kind of sudden fame and things. On the other hand, when you look back at it, it was exhilarating. It was fun and all those things. And I just was happy and grateful that my career was then and not now. Yeah. And the way Britain is today I mean are you would you have been a Brexiteer or a Remain no I, I wanted to remain I mean I didn't I, the only trouble 
was, as I saw it, that nobody really knew if you took the leap where you landed. Where you landed. Still don't know. No, we still don't know. That's precisely the point. And too many people had an idea that you opened the door, went out and closed it behind them. That was it. No, 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 no. No, what you did immediately, you fell under feet, you broke both your legs. And then you <laughs> might have spent four years learning how to walk again. But do you not think that <laughs> what, what a lot of them were looking for was return to maybe some of those images that you would have had from childhood? You know, the, the village square, cricket on the crease. Well, um, rose may, bushes or, growing up around the may, eve of the house. Or maybe, and I, I hope this is not true, maybe they didn't like the fact of immigrants coming into the country. You know, we're an immigrant nation, I've got to say. That's what made us, you know. I have a son who has a, a, a restaurant, a rather good restaurant. He said to me, Dad, if they start sending people home, I can't. I can't uh, open the restaurant, you know. The locals don't want to work. They don't like the, the shift work. They don't like the, all that sort of hard work that goes in the restaurant. But the people who come in from all over Europe, they do. They work damned hard, the Poles yeah. particularly. You know, and, 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 and so... But, I mean, go back to the paddies who built the underground well, in London that, and you know, uh, the motorways. and all that now, aren't we? I mean, uh, please God we are. You know, but uh, I do think a lot of it was due to a fact it was a kind of... A, now, I mean, I understand. I mean, I, I go up north and back to where I used to live and and the idea of a, of a kind of an in, uh, a revival of the industrial north is a nonsense. The northern powerhouse, how dare they? It's not like that at all. Uh, it's grim up there. Cancer rates are higher than anywhere else in the country. Unemployment's high. So I can understand their anger. I can understand that they think, come on, let's have a change. I mean, this is not working. And and I and I understand that perfectly well. And but don't forget that there is a saviour at hand, Jeremy Corbyn. Ah, well, dear <laughs> Jeremy, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's sad, isn't it? All those sort of loony left coming back now and making the same noises they made when Neil Kinnock was prime minister, and the same people, Derek Hatton in Liverpool, and all that. They'll be dealt with. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that they they've got no chance of power. Not so long as they're led by him, not so long as they, they, they're attracted to the kind of, you know, Marxists and Leninists and Stalinists that are always around the edges of the Labour yeah. Party and, and who sensible politicians and great Labour politicians have kept at arm's length. Yeah. I mean, Blair understood that to win elections, you've got to get the middle ground. No, you can't say his word now in the Labour circles without being accused of using a dirty word. But he won three elections for them, you know. And all right, so the, he might have had flaws. But, you know, better, I think, to have a chance of being elected than none at all. And I don't see the party under Corbyn mm. doing anything at all. Yeah, one of our politicians here, Mary Harney, said that the worst day in government is better than the best day in opposition. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think that's true. Absolutely it's true. It's the art of the possible, and you yeah. can't do anything if you're And we in need opposition. a strong opposition, too. I mean, every society does, you know. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it works out. But I've, I've been, it is depressing, actually, yes. Mm. Um, you're not quite retired, but you're doing less than you did. Yes, well, sort of, yeah, I am. I find it's difficult to, to actually you know, be as enthusiastic about things as I did. I suppose part of growing old. What, you mean you've seen it all before? Uh, well, it's not that so much. It's just that I don't have the energy to bother about it too much, you know. I think that's the sort of way you, 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 you sink into a kind of a not a, not a comfortable uh, state of affairs, but into one way you think, oh, I can't be bothered with all that anymore. Let me go watch a cricket match instead. Or something like that. It's part of growing old. Um, the, 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 the pace of life, obviously, it suits you to take it a little bit easier, but still, 
you got to keep doing things. Michael Caine, maybe he said it to you because he said it to me one time. Mm. He says, you know, actors don't retire. The public retire you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. I think it's true of television people too, in a sense. But I've always had that other thing, that other string to my bow. I've always been able to write. Yeah. So I can still do that. And that's what I'm doing, you know. And uh, maybe there's another book to be written. Maybe I should write a book about my Yorkshire childhood. Maybe that might be something to do because I'm constantly drawn back to it when I sort of think about things and what happened. And I did address it in the, the, in, in the autobiography, but, but not at length. And I didn't really explore the, the uh, dynamic between me and my mother and my father. And the other idea I had too was my wife Mary, of course, our antecedents are Irish. Your mom and dad came from uh, County Mayo um, uh, and died young, the two of them, before the middle 40s. So Mary sort of brought the family up. and like, She has an extraordinary story to tell. I wish she'd tell it. And what I thought was, it, let's have a situation where two children are born a year apart. Me there, my dad, and Mary there, her dad was a minor too. And then let's do alternate chapters about the two of us to the point where... In 19, well, when I was 21, and Mary was 20, we met on top of a bus, in <laughs> Doncaster. And I fell in love with her, and, and 57 years later, we're still married. And I just thought that that, that, that extraordinary chance that, that two people from this impoverished background, which it was, Mary's worse than mine, would actually get together and then create something which was rather nice and good, mm. you know. Eight grandchildren and all that, but the story of where we came from is is very interesting. Do you believe in serendipity? That, <laughs> and and how did I mean? Who broke the ice? Did maybe both of you were smokers in those days and you no, lit no. a cigarette for no, her? No, my wife was a PT teacher. She was fit. I'm going to say I was a the, I was a drunken journalist in the corner, the fag in the corner, you know, the snap rim trilby. So, so how did the meeting actually happen? Well, you were on top of a bus. I was going for a council meeting. Uh, in a local town called Tickhill, and she was doing some earning some spare money, taking a keep fit class, and uh, we met up. And uh, I was very shy in those days. I didn't call her. I don't, didn't know who she was basically. But my friend Dennis Cassidy, who was an investigative journalist later, uh, went found out, and he rang her up, pretended to be me, and made a date. And I turned up. How wow. pathetic! How pathetic! Really, eh? Just as well. Dennis well, had uh, those no, instincts. Can you imagine though? She was expecting Dennis Cassidy to turn up, and I turn up. <laughs> She could have looked at her. Mm, not sure. But the rest is history. The rest is history. Is history. Anyway, so much history to explore, which will be done at the Borgosh Energy Theatre on the 2nd of October with Sir Michael Parkinson. It's an audience with Sir Michael Parkinson. Tickets are available t- through Ticketmaster. And Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Part of enjoying. Good to see you again. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.